Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Laura McGee, founder and CEO of Diversio, an AI-based DEI platform that's raised over $6 million in funding. Laura, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks for having me, Beth. Yeah, no problem. So before we begin talking about what you're building, let's start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background. Great. So I'm Laura McGee. I'm the founder and CEO of Diversio. We were just chatting about how I'm Canadian by origin, but I live in New York now. Main job is running the software startup, Diversio. And on the side, I do some nonprofit work. So on the board of Global Citizen, University of Waterloo, and a few other organizations. Nice. Very cool. And I saw that you're the co-chair of the, what is it in Canada? The Women's Entrepreneurship Council? Yeah, it's the expert panel on women's entrepreneurship. We have wrapped up our work primarily, but we were focused on how do we get more capital? How do we get more business support to women who have founded some really great companies across the country? Nice. Very cool. And when you were building the company, did you view that as a requirement to move to New York? Or do you think you could have built this from Canada? I think I could have built it from Canada. And in fact, most of our engineering team, most of our operations are still in the country. But I felt it was really important to, you know, be local to a lot of our clients, in particular in the investment space, in the investment community. And not to mention, I mean, New York's a great city. So I was happy to move here. <laughs> nice. Makes a lot of sense. And two questions we like to ask just to better understand what makes you tick as a CEO, founder, and as a leader. Is there a CEO that you admire the most? And if so, you know, who is it and what have you learned from them? I would say the first and foremost is the former CEO of McKinsey, Dominic Barton. And he's someone who I had the luck and the pleasure to work with really closely while I was in consulting. And he's, to me, the epitome of a really inclusive leader, a really empowering leader who kind of you know leads from behind and really gets the most out of his team. Nice. What was that like going from uh, consulting at McKinsey to starting your own company? That must be a pretty big shift. I don't think it could have been any different. I guess maybe if I went from like an ER to running a, a software company, but I mean, moving from what builds itself and really is in, in the spirit of like large organizations, pretty entrepreneurial to having all of the freedom and also the responsibility of the entire company's PL was definitely a change. Nice. Makes a lot of sense. And what about books? Is there a specific book that's had a really big impact on you as a founder? There have been a couple. So and a little bit different. But the two I would say as a leader, as an executive that resonated the most, one is called The Outsiders. It's by mm-hmm. William Thorndike. And really interesting conclusion as he looked at some of the most, you know, lesser known, but highly successful companies over the past, call it 20, 30 years, is that the CEOs were all really good at allocating capital. And, you know, obviously broader view is allocating resources more broadly. So, you know, your top performer's time, your own time. And so I thought that was a really interesting way to think about being a CEO. It's not just about being the most charismatic or the most hardworking. It's really about making those smart decisions on where the company should move and focus. And then the second one, the CEO I almost said is, is, you know, my icon, my hero is Behind the Cloud by Mark Benioff. And I, I just think that the story of getting Salesforce off the ground and all the hacky, scrappy, creative things that they did to gain market share was, you know, really interesting and inspiring. Yeah, that's one of my favorite books of all time as well. I love the uh, the guerrilla marketing that Mark Benioff was doing in the early days and declaring war on software and taking that position was really clever. 
Right. That iconic scene of, you know, all the Salesforce staff standing outside of the San Francisco conference, literally picketing against hardware. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, I think at one point, didn't it say in the book he was considering driving a tank to one of the uh, competitors' conferences, but I think legal pulled the plug on that. Something along those lines. Oh, you know what? I'm just surprised if you listen to legal. So (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Very true. Nice. Well, let's talk about what you're building today. So can you give us a high-level pitch on what the platform does and what problem customers are really paying you to solve? Right. So Diversio, taking a big step back, is really focused on helping companies become more inclusive. So more welcoming and more productive for employees of all stripes, no matter where they come from. And the genesis, the light bulb moment behind the company was talking to CEOs in the context of doing consulting about diversity and inclusion and hearing very consistently that leaders are at a point, which took us a while, where they believe in the business case. And the idea that a more inclusive company is going to drive more revenue, more profit, more productivity, that's well established at this point. But where leaders fall down is they don't know how to do it. And so kept hearing, you know, I have no metrics, I have no data, I have no real targets. I'm throwing spaghetti at the wall with programs and training and nothing's working. What really occurred to me hearing that that problem again and again is there was no sales force for diversity and inclusion. There was no software platform that was helping companies, you know, strategize and operationalize on something that allegedly is a top three priority. And so the idea behind Diversio is creating a data-driven platform that helps companies really operationalize their diversity and inclusion commitments. So that means, you know, data-driven insights on what employees are experiencing in the workplace, helping you prioritize problem areas and pain points, really importantly, recommending solutions, really tactical, pragmatic, on-the-ground programs, policies that can solve the problem, and then ultimately tracking results and helping companies report them out to a really growing set of stakeholders who actually care about this issue. And if you're advising a company and they're you know just building their DI strategy, what are those top metrics that you recommend them to measure and to really focus on? Are there like one or two you know, primary North Star metrics or does it just really depend on the company and the, the size of the organization? So the metric that we anchor on is, is one that we developed internally. It's called the inclusion metric. Mm-hmm. And what that reflects is the experience of, in particular, non-dominant employees. So employees that fall into a demographic group that's not in the majority, in the kind of leadership ranks of an organization. And so you're capturing in that metric, not only representation, so making sure that you have a diversity of people at the company who are participating, but also are they having you know an equally positive, welcoming, enabling experience as you know, as folks that may be more represented at the company. Got it. Makes sense. And could you help me define the terms or navigate how to define the terms? Because I see DEI, I hear DNI, I, you know, I hear a lot of different variations of this. What's the actual term that I should be using and what should others be using as well? Oh, it is the, you know, perennially moving target. Even the arrangement of the letters in the acronym is, is you know, constantly moving. But we typically think of diversity, equity, and inclusion, so DEI, in no particular order, but those are the the kind of guiding principles that, that we work towards. Is there a movement now to try to shift the order of those? Did I understand that correctly? Oh, we've seen like IND, EDI, DEI, DNI. Um, <laughs> I guess we haven't seen I. We haven't seen IDE yet, but I'm sure it's coming. <laughs> That's funny. What about market categories? What are your views when it comes to market categories? You know, reading the behind the cloud, I'm sure you must have you know, some opinions there. So what are your thoughts? 
The really interesting thing about diversity and inclusion is it really is, you know, it transcends a lot of the typical traditional segments. Mm -hmm. So people often ask me, you know, who do you sell to? Who's your main buyer? And the assumption is that it's, you know, this is an HR solution. It's an HR tool. But what we find is that often our buyers or at least our champions are from the marketing department because companies are realizing that their reputation and their brand for values and inclusion are really critical to their buyers. We get, you know, folks from the legal department who are responsible for reporting and EEOC compliance and making sure that the workplace is free from any harassment claims. They come to us and say, hey, diversity and inclusion is essential to the work that we do. And then finally, we get board members and investors come to us and say, we have a big foothold in the investment uh, community. Like, look, we're exposed to a broad base of companies. And we know that inclusion risk could affect our portfolio in a really disproportionate way. And so we need to understand what the diversity and inclusion composition of our portfolio companies look like. So in terms of category, you know, there's all kinds of market reports about the D&I category being, call it $15 billion in TAM. We actually think it goes well beyond that, just based on the number of companies that and, and number of roles that take an interest. Makes a lot of sense. And if a company adopts the platform, what's the rollout look like? And you know, what's the time to value? Is this something that they can immediately put in place and see results within a week or a month? Or does this take you know, a quarter or longer of data to really make it useful? It's a good question. It was a really big focus for us. I think what we were trying to avoid is what a lot of you know, companies and leaders feel, which is that diversity and inclusion is overwhelming. And there's so many problems and things that need to be fixed and sorted through. And so when we built the platform, we designed it to be, number one, a super light lift to get it implemented. So typically it involves, you know, an anonymous four-minute pulse survey that's in the field for two weeks, following which we generate a dashboard, which provides not only insights, but also quick win recommendations that companies can implement to start to build that early momentum. Mm -hmm. And so typically what we find with our clients is, you know, they collect the data, pull together their leaders to understand, you know, here's our priorities. It might be mentoring women. It might be recruiting more people of color. It might be creating more mentorship opportunities for people with a disability. And then here's the two or three programs that we're going to implement over the next quarter, two quarters to solve those problems. And then, you know, three months, six months later, they start seeing the results as employees report higher levels of inclusion. Mm -hmm. And at that point, Typically, our clients are, you know, excited, empowered, and they start setting three-year goals, which are those longer-term, you know, more systemic areas that take time, but ultimately could transform the business. Got it. Makes a lot of sense. And in terms of traction and adoption, are there any metrics that you're okay with sharing? Yeah, so we've grown significantly, as you can imagine, over the past four years. So 2020 was a, a turning point in this industry for a lot of reasons, everything from the racial equality movement to you know, work from home with the pandemic. And so we've grown now. We have clients operating across about 35 countries, obviously with a big footprint in North America and Europe. We've got about, I guess, over 200 enterprise clients and about 400 SMB and individual clients, everything from, you know, the World Bank and Accenture, Danone, Honda to State Street and Canada Pension Plan. So really running the gamut in terms of the companies that we work with and the geographic footprint. Yeah, and I see those you know big name logos on the website. Any insights into how you're able to land such well known and impressive logos? That's always you know the, the hard part that I think a lot of founders face when they try to move into the enterprise is you know how do you get them to take a risk on a startup? So what was your secret sauce there, or what do you think you know, contributed to your success there? 
You know, it's funny. As a founder now, I, I kind of look back and think through, you know, would I take a chance on an unvalidated, <laughs> unvalidated software program? But, you know, it really was a combination from the beginning. I mean, Anya and I, my co-founder, we didn't have capital when we started the company. So we had to bootstrap. And the, you know, hidden benefit of bootstrapping is you find yourself building a really great product because if you don't have money to spend on acquisition, the product really has to sell itself. And so early on, we innovated around recommendations, for example. So we have the world's only longitudinal data set on what actually works to create a more inclusive workplace. And then really invested ourselves in user experience with our early adopter clients to make sure that the platform, you know, told a story and could help them gain executive buy-in and uh, celebrate their efforts. So I think the product was one aspect. And then if I'm being very honest, we were scrappy. We had to be. And so we kind of took meetings and asked for interest wherever we could get them. And then we were able to form a few partnerships with like YPO, for example, early on that helped us get introductions and then build some of that early traction. Makes a lot of sense. And just in terms of the general landscape, there's obviously a lot of noise around diversity and inclusion tools and platforms. And I feel like TechCrunch, you know, every week has a new company that's being funded to try to do some part, you know, be part of this problem in some way. What are you doing to really rise above all that noise and stand out? Well, I think first thing is, honestly, the more the merrier in this space. I'm, I think it's a great point of validation that companies are ready to, to really take the topic seriously and allocate spending. So we are you know, very excited to see more recruiting tools and culture tools and pay equity tools come onto the market. I think for us, where we stand apart is our ability to really translate insights and progress into metrics that are widely recognized. So our inclusion metric, as we talked about earlier, not only helps kind of rationalize and clarify a company's diversity and inclusion strategy, but it also is, you know, highly recognized by investors who are now asking for this data. And so I think investing in both sides of that coin has, has helped us gain a really sticky advantage over, you know, maybe some other platforms. And how would you describe the state of diversity and inclusion today, just in general, you know, across organizations? Obviously, it's had a lot of attention, I'm sure, since, you know, 2020 when you started. But what is it like today? Are we actually seeing improvements? Or how would you describe the state of diversity and inclusion today? So that's a trap. <laughs> I would say it's not, you know, we're not living in a paradise where all of a sudden there's equal opportunity for everyone. Definitely, there's been more attention, which I think is a great first step. What we've seen, at least in our client base, is really meaningful improvements when the company takes a data-driven and really focused approach to programming. So one example, I just was talking to them last week, one of our financial services clients over a 12-month period saw a 10-point increase on their inclusion score, which is out of 100. That's top tier, top quartile. And the way that they did it is they had three really clear pain points that were unique to their business. One was around, you know, advancement of women. So promoting women and making sure that they had champions and advocates. One was around mental health and making sure that there was flexibility and, and you know, kind of lifestyle supports for people who have mental health conditions. And one was around really recruiting and hiring in particular Black employees. Mm -hmm. And they recognized those pain points, they aligned around them, and then they meticulously solved them, or at least, you know, started to, to make progress. And the cumulative impact of solving those programs drove like a real meaningful impact in the business. Nice. Makes a lot of sense. And another question for you, you know, on, on my end as a podcast host, I've made a big push to improve my own diversity, especially when it comes to having more female founders on. And 
as I've been going through that, I've been you know, disappointed and shocked to see that there's just not that many female founders of venture-backed startups. What's that like for you being a woman in this space? And what can we do to get more involved and have more women become venture-backed founders and, and CEOs? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked. So we do, I mean, we do a lot of work with VC firms who are, to be honest, and I, I'm so behind this, often their biggest drivers, they want deal flow. And the data shows that female founders tend to start, you know, more profitable businesses, more sustainable businesses, lower risk businesses. And so a lot of our VC clients are like, look, you know, great quality deal flow is hard to come by. We want to expand our horizons. We know there's probably some bias at play because most of our investors are men. So, you know, what do we do? How do we get out there and source more female founders? And so I think in terms of what we advise them is, you know, expand your networks, expand your idea of what a successful company looks like, try and get away from markets that you're personally aware of because you personally feel the problem and expand your horizon and and really your empathy around what other individuals might be facing. My favorite example is like reproductive health. One of my kind of favorite startups is helping women with egg freezing, which is a huge trend in in my cohort, my friend group, but most of my, you know, male investor friends, it doesn't really resonate. Well, that's a huge market opportunity that if you're not focused on that community, you're just going to miss the startups. So I think like just expanding your horizon in that way. And then on the female founder side, the unfortunate reality, I think for us, my Anya and I, is that we really did struggle to raise capital early on. And the pushback that we got was that, you know, we don't believe that this market is, you know, maturing fast enough. We don't think the companies are really spending money. We don't think that people really care about diversity and inclusion. It's all lip service. And so what it took for us was pretty unreal metrics. We needed better than top quartile growth metrics. We needed better than top quartile COGS. We needed better than top quartile capital efficiency. We really needed A pluses across the board. And I mean, the good news is once you get there, it's not difficult to raise capital. I think it's just unfortunate that women do tend to have to demonstrate performance, whereas men are often back for their ideas. Yeah, makes sense. And are you seeing that change overall? From my end, you know, what I see at least in like the numbers and the data that comes out every six months or every quarter is it, it doesn't really seem like there's that much progress being made. So like from your perspective, is progress actually being made or is that just kind of BS at this point? I mean, I'm a data-driven person. And if you look at the objective data, it's like incremental at best. So we're talking about, you know, is 2% of venture capital going to women or 3%? And then we're celebrating when it's like 25 So I would say like statistically, not really. What I'm excited about though is we're seeing that a lot of institutional investors are getting quite bold about the data they're requesting from their venture capital and private equity recipients. So you have like the, you know, Ontario Teachers Pension Plan, for example, and any other institution who's part of ILPA is using the new due diligence form, which requires or asks GPs to collect data on their portfolio company representation. And so what that means is that if you are, I don't know, Andreessen Horowitz and you're going to raise fund, I don't know, 15 from call it Columbia Endowment, Columbia Endowment is saying, okay, but first I need to know what is the gender representation of the founders in your portfolio. And as I gather more benchmarking data and start to ask questions on that front, I think that's a really important pressure point for Mm -hmm. these funds to, to really take action because the data is starting to mean something. Interesting. So it's top down coming from the LPs pressuring the GPs to make this a priority. Exactly. 
feel like that probably makes no sense if people don't know what that is. So limited partners and general partners. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. That's true. I don't know if the how uh, this is probably kind of gibberish to a lot of your audience, but that's that's exactly right. Yeah, we're getting all the buzzwords here: LPs, GPs, DEI. Yeah, <laughs> <AI>, like. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, that, uh, that makes a lot of sense. And that's good to hear that you know, that pressure is coming from the top down. It seems like that top down approach is working in a lot of other ways, I think, as well, right? I'm seeing more and more LPs are putting out statements just about their portfolios and wanting to focus more on ESG investments. So it seems like that's working to some extent. Yeah, I think we're, I'm hopeful about that trend. Nice. That's good to hear. And another question for you, as you brought this idea to market, what's been your greatest challenge that you faced and how'd you overcome it? You know, it's funny. I think two challenges come to mind. One is, and we kind of really do our best to to mitigate this, but there is often a fear of tackling diversity and inclusion. And it's very simple. People are worried about saying the wrong thing Mm -hmm. and getting, you know, trash for that on Twitter or internal Slack channels, whatever it is. So I think there's this fear that if I don't get it perfect, then I should not try because the, the downside of getting it a little bit wrong is, is worse than the do nothing. And so we try to cultivate a mentality of like, look, nothing is going to be, you're never going to flip a switch and suddenly know what all the letters in LGBTQ2 plus stand for. It's a learning process. So, you know, the idea is start with one area, nail it, go to the next area, nail it. And by the way, you're going to try programs, you're going to make statements that's all a little bit flat but it's supposed to be an iterative process. So I think that internal fear, which is a really human emotion, has been one of the inhibitors. Luckily, I do think the external pressures are great enough that I think folks are kind of overcoming that. And so I think the second challenge has been around the downside of this being a really you know transcendent priority is that there's a lot of people who want to have some sort of input. And so you know, you're kind of trying to close a deal and you've got legal all over you. You've got, you know, marketing who wants to be involved. You've got the CEO who has a personal interest because he or she is, you know, personally making commitments. So it can be kind of a lot of organization to work through, but obviously worth it once everyone's aligned. That makes a lot of sense. And last couple of questions here for you. What excites you most about the work you get to do every day? Oh, the impact on employees. One of my favorite parts of the work week and definitely the month is we'll do like a monthly all hands meeting. And that's an opportunity for our client success team to come forward with stories and real quotes from employees about how our work has helped them. So one of my favorite examples was we had a West Coast, I think it was medical insurance company client, very traditional, had been managed in a very traditional way for, you know, 60, 70 years. And we discovered that their LGBT employees really felt excluded, in particular their trans community. And nobody was comfortable being out at work at all. And that was really affecting mental health. It was affecting performance. And so we had recommended basically a whole action plan around LGBT inclusion, which had not even been on their radar until our assessment kind of surfaced the, you know, the red boxes. And the management team really took it seriously, you know, implemented a whole bunch of programming around pride, implemented new forms of parental support, parental leave, trans care, et cetera. And the feedback that came from employees the next time we ran the survey was so emotional, um, really deeply affecting in terms of their experience being meaningfully different and them having a completely renewed confidence in their careers. It's that kind of story that I think reinforces for all of us, like we're having a real impact on people, not just on you know budgets and profits and all that good stuff. 
that's amazing. And yeah, it must be fun to work on something with such impact. You know, this isn't just like a, a better chat bot or a better email tool. This is, you know, something that's really changing people's lives. So that must feel amazing. Yeah, although we did just build a chat bot and it was great. <laughs> <laughs> and if we zoom out into the future, what's the three-year vision for the company? So we are aiming to be the best and the most widely used DEI platform for HR professionals. So we are kind of consistently growing our product suite, improving the product to touch every aspect of the employee lifecycle, everything from applicant tracking to data collection to programs and systems to, you know, on our roadmap is an, an exciting new engagement tool. And so our goal is to help leaders really integrate and incorporate diversity and inclusion into the entire lifecycle of, of their staff. Nice. Love it. And that's certainly exciting. Unfortunately, that's all we're going to have time to cover for today. But before we wrap, if people want to follow along with your journey as you build, where's the best place for them to go? I would go to at Diversio Global on Twitter or Diversio on LinkedIn and our website, www.diversio.com. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. It was really fun hearing about what you're building. And I wish you the best of luck in executing on this vision. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, take care. Take care.